All right. You guys ready for the word? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joe Purcell is, uh, in my book, you know, just, he is like a, a big deal. He's like a general and uh, a mover and shaker in the things of God. And so it's a complete, huge, massive honor to have you with us. Um, one of the things, how many of, uh, how would you like to know what church he attends in Singapore? Sure. Nobody. Okay, great. Um, Joseph, you all know Joseph Prince? Okay. So I'm telling you stuff you don't even know, that you already know. Uh, what else can I tell you about him? He is almost at the very finish end of his doctoral. And uh, he's already a lawyer, but uh, doctorate in theology and all that kind of stuff. So powerful man of God. So the anointing works. You can, you can increase the anointing up here by drawing on his anointing, by amening, staying engaged, writing notes. Uh, and, and that will energize Joe and the Spirit of God in him. So I want, I want some meat tonight. I don't want a little bit of ice cream. I want some meat. We are carnivores. How many carnivores are here tonight? Some meat-eating machines. So would you welcome Joe Purcell? just going to ask the Lord right now, Father, to open our hearts, open our minds to understand your word. Uh, give us the words to say that you want said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start out with two scriptures that probably will not make a lot of sense to you, and uh, doing that on purpose. I, li- I like to uh, you know, when I'm teaching people over in Asia, and, and especially ministers, that's my, my focus, but we're all ministers, um, I like to get them to think, because God gave us a brain, he gave us a mind to process the word of God, and the Bible says they that, you know, uh, uh, delight in God, uh, they will study the things of God, they will ponder that. And uh, so we're not just a brain, obviously. We can't go just by our mental faculties. However, um, if we're applying the God-given mind that God gave us to study the Word of God, uh, uh, those that delight in these things, study them, the Bible said. So um, I want to start out with these scriptures, and I, I may not explain them right away because I kind of like you to be confused and frustrated with that to start with. <laughs> no, I'll bail you out real quickly, but uh, this first one is First Samuel chapter 2. These are not scriptures that most people have taped to their bathroom mirror that they're <laughs> confessing over themselves every morning. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 6, the Lord, the Lord kills and makes alive, bring, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. Uh, this was Hannah praying. You know her story. She couldn't conceive. 
She prayed, God gave her a son, that son was Samuel, and then she brought him back to the priest Eli to dedicate him to the Lord, and this was part of her prayer that she did when she gave uh, Samuel back to the Lord. And so um, she gets to this part, the Lord kills and makes alive, and if we go to the the next verse, verse 7, continues along that line, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. The other scripture I want to turn to is Deuteronomy. Well, let's stay here for just a second. Uh, Many times we want to explain this away and say that, well, she just didn't know what she was talking about. They didn't have as much revelation as we do. Uh, And so uh, basically we think Hannah was confused. So I, I want to take you to another scripture just to nail this down and show you that she wasn't confused. She was speaking by the Spirit of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39, just to remove all doubt, uh, this says, this is the Lord speaking here. And he says, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Now, I will say this, just to start with, I do not believe that this is talking about, specifically, about physical sickness uh, uh, and physical death. Although, look, God is the judge of the, the whole earth. And we know that in the end, he will judge the living and the dead. And not everyone will go to heaven. Uh, we know in the Old Testament he did execute judgment on people. There were physical consequences. And, and uh, in the New Testament we even see where Paul said uh, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But that was a, an extreme situation, a dire situation. And I think this has another application that applies to people who come out to church on Sunday night on a beautiful Pacific Northwest Sunday evening when they could be doing other things. I think this has application to us in such a way that it will help us and to help us to uh, obtain and receive and walk in some of the things that we were talking about tonight, singing about rather tonight. Now now I want to go back over, we'll pick this up, I want to go back over to where I was this morning to Romans chapter 1. The um, letter to the Romans said this this morning, it was written to those who were called to be saints, called of Jesus Christ, called to be saints. This was not written to unbelievers, it was written to the, to the Christians at Rome. And this was not a church that Paul established, they didn't know him. Paul was writing to them for several reasons, but one reason he was writing to them was to acquaint them with his gospel. We credit, we talk about Martin Luther, the great reformer in the Middle Ages and the 1500s, who rediscovered the truth of justification by faith. And we say that very you know, easily, uh, even without thinking about it much, but, but the key thought there is he rediscovered it. Martin Luther didn't invent it uh, any more than Brother Hagen invented Mark 11, 22, 23, 24. Uh, uh, he kind of rediscovered that for this generation. But, but Luther rediscovered uh, a truth that primarily the Apostle Paul brought forth to the body of Christ, and he does it in this epistle, among other things. Uh, and so 
he is laying out here, if, if I could say this, a template for how Paul preached the gospel. Now, there's ways to imitate the word of God, to take a word, to take a scripture, to take a paragraph, but there's also entire life patterns that are here in the book. And you can either do it your way or you can do it God's way. Or you can think, well, I, I think it should be done this way. I have this idea. And, you know, by the mercy of God, many of our ideas work. But uh, the thoughts of God are contained in the word of God the same way that your thoughts are contained in your words. And so the spirit of God here is showing us how Paul preached the gospel. He's demonstrating this for the, for the Christians at Rome. And so we begin at verse 16, and I'm just going to, we, we can't be here all night. I'm not going to rush through these scriptures. I'm going to just take them as we go, and we'll just take the, the, the word that we get, the truth that we get, and, and we'll work with that. And hopefully remind me to go back to 1 Samuel and Deuteronomy 32. But we're, we're getting there right now. We're getting right into that very, very quickly. I want to start at verse uh, 15, because it leads into verse 16. So, Paul says, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Then he starts, verse 16, with this word for, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that that means because. You know, if you say, I uh, brought an umbrella today for it will rain. The, the, the weather app says it will rain at 8 o'clock, you know, for, because. And that's what that word means in the original text. The word for here just means because, and we can read it that way. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Key words here. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me stop right there. One of the problems Paul was addressing is that, that uh, there was an attitude among the Jews because they had such a depth of uh, the, their history with God, and they had the, the, the scriptures, and, uh, you know, they grew up in this, right, for generation upon generation, and there was an attitude that Paul had to deal with on both the Gentiles and the Jews. He, he kind of cuts the Gentiles down to size later, because many of the Jews were driven out of Rome, and during that time, the Gentile church got very strong, and it would be easy to think that you're, you're better than the others. The Jews, on their part, had an idea that, uh, you know, kind of like what I was talking about this morning, if you were here, I said, you know, when I got saved, I really didn't think I was as bad a sinner as everyone else. I thought I was a nice sinner. Yeah. What, is a, what is a nice sinner? I was a, I was a nice sinner, uh, and I wasn't. That was the big revelation when I found out, ah, this is me. So uh, they had that idea. They had the idea that, uh, and there, there's things I won't go into, don't have time to go into, where um, they really didn't think they sinned like everybody else. Right. And that, that, you know, some of this stuff doesn't apply to us. And so Paul is doing here, he's a great equalizer, uh, as we'll see. So he says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, because they had the covenant, they had the promises, and also to the Greek, which would be, Primarily the Gentiles, all of us, most of us. If there, I don't know if there are anyone here of Jewish descent, but more, more, you know, the non-Jews. Then another four, verse 17, because. So he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then skip down to verse 17. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So we could put it together this way. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's an all-inclusive word. It covers everything we sang about in worship. Everything you vocalized and expressed in worship that you desire and are longing for is included in this concept of salvation and redemption of the human race. That God bailed us out from this condition that we were in, this, this lost condition. And so he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because therein, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Martin Luther's big breakthrough came when he understood after a torment, a, to a great torment in his life, uh, a great struggle, um, uh, and wrestling and dealing with this because this truth had been buried and he was surrounded by powerful people and a powerful institution that believed exactly opposite of what I'm going to tell you. The, the prevailing thought was that you could gradually become righteous as you grow in love and practice acts of charity and you would gradually acquire uh, 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 more and more righteousness as you developed good habits and hopefully when you died you would be at a place where you could go to heaven uh, footnote you probably wouldn't you'd have to go to purgatory that was the prevailing thought you'd go to that middle state which which is not biblical it doesn't exist where you would pay for your sins for you know a few thousand years in fires that were as hot as the fires of hell and that that would somehow purify you, and then you'd reach a state of righteousness where you could go to heaven. Well, uh, Luther was a man of his times. He, was, he was, uh, grew up in that, and he was tormented with the thought that God was demanding this righteousness of him. And it, it, it got to the point where he was so angry. He said, he said I, I did not love God. No, he said, I, I hated him that he would demand this of us. And then to, 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 to make it worse, then he brings the gospel on the scene and Jesus preaches the gospel in you know, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, which many people think, oh, that's the, the law of the millennium. But actually the point of that sermon in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus intensified and internalized the law. So the, the prevailing understanding among the Jews was as long as you did certain things outwardly or didn't do certain things outwardly, you were okay. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns it up 10,000 times and says, this goes to your inner heart, your attitudes, uh, the minutest thing, the minutest fragment, fiber of, 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 of uh, ungodly motivation, a lack of purity in thought or heart or deed. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is not designed as something that you can do. It's designed to show you what you cannot do. And that's why Jesus at the end says, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you've heard this uh, rationalized away. People say, well, he didn't really mean that. I mean, automatically, you know, that's impossible. Are you, are you as perfect? Is there anyone here who is as perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? Yeah. Raise your hand because 
Pastor Starlene will cast that lying demon out. <laughs> She'd do it too. She's <laughs> the devil knows she's ornery, you know. Uh, no, uh, you know, people say, well, that just means be mature as your heavenly father is mature. Well, that doesn't help you. Think about it. Be as mature as your heavenly father is mature. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the same as perfect. You know, no, he meant it. He said, you know, really, guys, if you're going to be righteous, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we're getting to 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. He kills, he makes a lie. Paul said, remember what Paul said? He said, I was alive once, but when the commandment came, I died. And Romans 7 is a picture of the interaction of the law with the, with the old Adam, the old Eve. What I want to do, I do not do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. Wretched man that I am, which is where Luther was, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Every Christian that is yearning for holiness and to be walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, goes through that. In fact, one of the great um, things about looking into church history is that you will find the greatest saints of God, the greatest preachers, Spurgeon, others, these were people who had the greatest fear of God and they felt so unworthy. And the closer they, they, they seem to come to God, the more it seemed to illuminate the areas of their lives that did not reflect God. Now, I just want to be careful to say this, because sometimes you get home and you think, oh, I didn't say that. I didn't finish that thought. Do you ever do that, Pastor Craig? No. <laughs> I want to be careful to say this from the start. We don't stay there. That's not the point. Paul didn't write Romans 1 through 3 for the Christians there to feel, oh man, like Luke Skywalker. No. Uh, he didn't write that to them to bring them under condemnation because in chapter 8, you know, our favorite verse, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He didn't write those things to give them a sin consciousness. He wrote it to give them a consciousness of redemption. Because when you know what you've been delivered from, it is glory. It is uh, uh, unspeakable glory. When you see the depths to which Jesus went to save you. And that's why I said earlier, you cannot appreciate when someone pays a debt for you. If you don't know what the debt was, you, you, you don't know how grateful to be. And that's why uh, I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said the, 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 the ultimate test of your spirituality is the measure of your amazement at the grace of God. And that's why when I first was saved, I wasn't amazed. I thought, of course. <laughs> I was already 90% saved. Isn't that stupid? I wasn't quite that bad, but really, maybe worse. I don't know. Just ignorant. Well, so Paul did not, we don't stay there. 
So I'm going to talk about things like you see these areas of your life, but don't you want to see them? You know, if you want to get, grow close to God and get into his presence, you get into the presence of glory and stuff will show up. When we lived in Russia, when we lived in Arctic Russia, you know, it's tundra up there. There's no trees. It's rocks and snow uh, and... and um, with wind chill, and, and sometimes it can get probably down to minus 90. Yeah, with, with wind chill. You get a 30 mile an hour wind behind 40 below. It wasn't very often that cold, but it was cold. And when we would turn the water on in the morning, it came out black, coal black. Gradually, as you let that run, it would turn to a bright orange, like, do they still make tang? Is Tang still a dream? Uh, I, I never could tan. I was so embarrassed to wear a bathing suit. I mean, if you've ever seen the, the, the belly of, a, of, of, of like a sole or, you know, I mean a fish. I mean, that's, that was, that's me. You know, just one of my friends said, Joe, I have to wear sunglasses when you wear shorts because I'll go snow blind if I, if I don't. It's <laughs> terrible. Um, so if you bathe in that water, you get a copper tone tan. You're, you know, you're, you just turn orange. Now it's kind of happy, like I've got, I've got some color now. But you wash your clothes in that. And you know, my dear wife, our washing machine was, it was a Russian machine. And it had a little chamber for washing and then it had a chamber with a centrifuge. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and it was issued with a wooden stick. That stick was part of the thing. And you'd use that stick to help that centrifuge turn. No way. It would take my, my wife, I think, six hours to do the laundry because you'd, we'd have to strain the water through cotton. And it wasn't American cotton. Couldn't take it out. It had to be Russian cotton to take out that, that sediment and everything. But my point of this story is, and we've gone a long way from the point, is when we looked at our clothes when we were living over there, it, we thought it was fine, they're clean and we look nice. But you come back to the States where everything is brand new and clean and you just didn't realize how drab these clothes were and how bad they, they looked. And so when, one reason we're not sensitive to, to how we are, we get accustomed to our attitudes and little things and we say, ah, well, that's, you know, I'm just speaking the truth in love or, or something like that. You know, I'm not jealous, I'm just angry or some, something. The reason we can do that is we've never been to heaven. We have never stood in the presence of eternal, almighty glory. We've never been face to face with a sinless being whose eyes Eyes of fire, love, pure, perfect love. How could you be in the presence of that? So this journey on earth is not about a gradually acquiring righteousness. It's about being suddenly and radically uh, 
declared justified, acquitted, justified. Christ's own righteousness imputed to you. And that is always there so that when you see things, attitudes and, and, and things that you don't like, you know and you, you know and you are forced to lay hold of that truth as you've never held on to it before. And that, that is the whole, the whole purpose of the law for the Christian. The Lord kills. That the law is the sermon that he preaches at the grave of the old Adam and the old Eve. And the gospel is the sermon that he preaches at the graveside of Lazarus. He kills and he makes alive. The law kills. It kills every aspiration, every thought, every motivation, if you let it. And you wouldn't want to do what, what I did. And I, I'm not, I can compare myself with Martin Luther in this respect. I know what anfektum is. That was his word for this terrible torment. Where you see yourself under an electron microscope. And this one reaction is, well, that's just the devil, and the devil is just tormenting you. And it's true. And I, I, I always tried to figure all this stuff out, but I've stopped trying to do that so much because you can spend your whole life trying to figure everything out instead of just, just take the truth. And yeah, the devil does take stuff like that and, and makes you run with it but, or, or torments you with it. But on the other hand, like I was saying this morning, probably no one in here ever feels condemned for... For, for robbing a bank this morning because you didn't do it. So when the devil comes and brings condemnation, many times there's enough truth in the accusation that, you know, it bothers you. And so what I would do, and I, I can talk about me, but I think this is, I'm, I know this is universal, is that uh, you, you, you try to push that away and say, well, you know, um, that's not me, that's my flesh. Like I said to the pastor this morning, I said, you know, that dog won't hunt. Try that with the state patrol if they pull you over for speeding. T t tell them, just see what they say when you say, you officer, that wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't? It looked like you. No. <laughs> that was my flesh. <laughs> You're what? <laughs> He's going to write you two tickets, one for you and one for your flesh. So it is your flesh, okay? You, you can't dodge it. You can't say, that wasn't me. That's not the real me. Oh, really? Well, okay. Well, here, I'll give this to the other you, and you pay for it or take care of it for him, all right? So, uh, so, yeah, the devil will try to torment you over those things, but actually the law will highlight things that, that really are there. And what that forces you into is um, you despair of your own righteousness. You die to that. And you see these things coming out in your personality. You know, precious metals, when they heat it up, gold and silver, 
the impurities, the dross comes to the surface. And so when you go through tests and trials, that's when the dross comes to the surface and you, and you, see, you see things. You know, and, and that's one of the benefits, one of the advantages of going through tribulation. Like Paul said in Romans 5.5, 5, he said, not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. Knowing that tribulation produces endurance and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does make us not ashamed for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts uh, by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. I, I have seen this, that when I've gone through really difficult times of testing and trial, um, God is doing something. And even when people have been motivated by the devil, and, and we've all had that, where you really have people who are motivated by the devil to do bad things and to hurt you and do all this. But my question is, well, what's God doing? And, you know, I, I can't control that person. I can pray for that person. I can love my enemy, do good to them, pray for them, bless them, forgive them, and, and so on. And uh, there is a devil, and, and there are times when we take authority over the devil. But still, what's God doing? God's not just doing one thing. And so you'll see... You know, somebody said the law is everything that accuses you in the Bible. It's not just the Old Testament. It's anything in the scripture that accuses or condemns or shows you your sin. And, and that's the, the beauty of the law, if you understand what, what its purpose is. And so when you're going through these difficult things, what happens is that the, the, the dross comes to the surface. And... I've been in situations where I was definitely attacked by the devil and other people. But the newsflash was, Joe, you've got some things here that you think are holy, but they're not. You've got some attitudes here that's just bankrupt. And I'm just going to say this. I can't think of a better way to say it, but it's kind of scary for me. I don't like to see that. And I, I can't just push those away and ignore them. I mean, it kind of scares me. It's like, and, and attitudes that I realize are so deeply ingrained. I've had it all my life, and I want to say, oh, my God. Yeah. How can I get rid of that? I, I, did, I always thought that was me. And sometimes I thought it was the good part of me, you know, that, that guy that was a good sinner. <laughs> but the law will always do that. It will always show you what is impossible for you. It will show you that you are not God. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. And the law, when they, they saw, stood accused and condemned by the law, they saw we are not God. They wanted to be like God. And the same thing is true even of uh, us believers. Is that because we love the Lord and we're zealous for the Lord and we want to please the Lord, it's very easy to cross that fine red line over into uh, being God, saving yourself and, and changing yourself and, and that sort of thing. I, I also made this... I want to clarify one other thing, but I don't know that I want to do it right now. Well, I will. I said this, you know, God is not in the salvaging business. He's not in making you, uh, you know, like become a better you. 
and that sort of thing, I've just become a better you. I want to clarify, look, if you want to learn to play the violin or play tennis better, get a better golf stroke, uh, uh, learn music, do, that's great. I mean, we should improve ourselves on the natural side. What I was talking about is you can't improve on your justification or your righteousness. You either are righteous or you're not. You either, you either are trusting in the Lord Jesus yeah. as, as your righteousness or you don't have any. So that's why I said God's looking for, you know, the Marines are looking for a few good men. God's looking for some dead men. Dead men that he can raise. Dead men that have been crucified, buried with Christ, yeah. resurrected. Right. Right. That's what I, I meant to say, and I didn't finish that thought. So, so what Paul then does here in the first three chapters, that's why he goes into that litany of, of things, and he makes sure they know this is, applies to both Jew and Gentile. This is everyone so that they would, every avenue of escape would be closed and they would know there is no way you're going to save yourself. There's no way you can, uh, in, by your own power, change deeply ingrained attitudes and, and so on that you may have had all your life. Now, what we can do is we see the light of God's word and we choose to believe it. And, and the power of the gospel is the, the, the righteousness of God revealed. If we're not making a connection in some area of our life, this would be one of the very first places to look. The gospel has power because it reveals, and this is what Luther saw, this is not the righteousness that God is demanding of me. This is the righteousness that God gives to me by his grace. So, so when Luther was laboring under this idea, and Paul did too, you know, out of his experience, uh, whether it's, it's the experience of every man in Romans 7. Every, every God-fearing person has gone through Roman, Romans 7. Uh, Luther was tormented because he thought he had to achieve this righteousness in himself. And he said when he saw that this is not the righteousness that God is demanding of you, but the righteousness that he gives to you freely by his grace, based upon the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and his fulfillment of the law on your behalf, he said, that's when I broke through. And it was as though I entered in through the doors of paradise. I, will, I was, I think he's born again, something like that. So, uh, but what brought him to that place when he was tormented is not everything he was seeing was wrong. Not everything the law shows you is, is false. The devil will lie. But many times uh, as you encounter the law, and it can be not only in the scripture, but just through life, uh, through Facebook, social media. You know, social media could just make you feel miserable because it's... It's projecting this inadequacy that, that everybody else's life is better than, than mine. And you'll begin to think about certain areas of your life. It's accusation. It's condemnation. And, and so the law and the gospel was his, Paul's template. And he's first, he's showing them through this long uh, passage from 1.16 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul keeps the pressure on, starting in verse 18. He says, 
the, the gospel is the power of God because it reveals the righteousness of God. It is an unfolding. It's a revelation. It's not something that would naturally occur, occur to human beings. Now, um, the wrath of God also had to be revealed. It's interesting because normally, naturally, none of us believes that Romans 3 is talking about us really, truly, deeply in our hearts. I mean, a few people might. And those people, if they're believers, have really a good grasp of the grace of God. But um, the wrath of God also has to be revealed because we all believe we're better than we are. I mean, you talk to the head of the biggest drug cartel in the world and he probably thinks he's basically a nice guy because he's only, you know, knocked off a thousand people. He's not like that other guy that's killed 10,000. So he's a pretty nice guy. So uh, the wrath of God, he says in verse 18, he says, he says that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. And what reveals that is the law, because the law is unsparing. It is, uh, it is exact. It is demanding. That same revelation you can see in the cross of Christ. It is at one and the same time a revelation of the wrath of God, the unmitigated wrath of God, poured out upon the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, because of that divine exchange, it is a revelation of his righteousness that he has given to us through the cross of Christ. We see both the law and we see the gospel. So Paul says the gospel has power because it reveals the righteousness of God. And if there is a place in our lives where we're not making a connection, that would be the first place I would check, is are you believing the gospel in that area? You know, just uh, Luther also said this. He said, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day because we forget it. Come on. What was new to you yesterday or fresh to you yesterday may not be fresh to you today. Amen. And so uh, if you get to a place and you will, where you see attitudes or things in your life that I cannot change that. That's good. Because now you know you are not God. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful place to be. And so Paul says, he says, the righteous man shall live by faith. And I just want to make a comment on that. So how many of you know a language other than English? Do you know Latin, really? Oh. <laughs> Well, what language? What languages do you know? Spanish. Sign language. I don't know if this is true in sign language. Might be, but in many languages, like in English, we have a very strict word order. You would say, um, "I went to the store today," and if you, you, you could change that around a little bit, but you wouldn't say, "I store went today." You wouldn't do that. But in other languages, like Russian, uh, maybe Spanish. I can't can't remember. But it's free word order. And that's true of the biblical languages. Uh, so their words are constructed in the, in the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, are constructed. They're made in such a way that they signal logic and meaning by like the endings on the words, things like that. And they can move the words around in a sentence for emphasis. So if they want to emphasis, emphasize that you went to the store, they might begin with, store I went to today, something like that. Greek is free word order, and so in verse 17, where it says, but the righteous man shall live by faith, 
we very often have this idea that that means that we just got to keep believing God, you know, for things. Keep, keep your faith up because this is how we live. We just got to believe, believe, believe. You got to believe for shoes, believe for a car, believe for a house, believe for clothes, and just keep. And you do, you do. That's, 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 a, that's a valid purpose of faith, but that's not what that's talking about here. This is not talking about, you know, you just have to stay strong in faith because that's how we live. Actually, many scholars, Greek scholars, this, I didn't come up with this, prefer this translation, and it's totally valid because in Greek it's free word order. Free word order. It's that um, the righteous, you can say the righteous shall live by faith, or um, the righteous have life by faith. The one who is righteous shall live. The righteous shall live by faith, or the one who is righteous shall live. And that happens in a moment, in a moment of time. God raises the dead. When we believe the promise of the gospel, that God says, I forgive you. The gospel is that simple. It is a promise. I forgive you. You know, salvation doesn't even happen when you make a decision. When you make a decision, you are affirming that you have believed. It's when you hear the gospel, that promise of forgiveness, and you believe. It's when Ephesians 2 says that, he, you know, he, he raised you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He gave life to you. It's a creative word. It's a powerful word. It's a word that recreates. I, I kill and I make alive. So when, when a sinner hears the gospel... There is creative power in that. And faith comes by hearing that word. That when they believe, they're born again by the Spirit of God. If they get up and they make a decision or a pronouncement, they're basically affirming what they believed. So the one who is righteous by faith shall live. There's power in that. There's power in knowing that you are right with God. And even when you see the bad stuff, you are right with God. When the law shows you things, imperfections, and, and as I said, that can come reading the word. Uh, you know, you can be, you can be reading about uh, where Paul said, you know, bless those who persecute you, and then for emphasis, he says, bless and do not curse. <laughs> and if you've ever had anybody who really qualifies as an enemy, boy, that, that seems impossible. I think there's only one person who can do that, and it's the Lord Jesus. And because he paid for my sins, and he lived a pure and perfect, perfect life, that righteousness is now attributed to me. Once I say that and I see that, I can do that. Once I hear that, have you ever thought about how Jesus obeyed the Father? You know, he came, he was he was born of a virgin. He lived on the earth as God-man. He was God and man. And he is the only human being who has ever offered up to God absolutely pure and perfect obedience out of no motive less worthy than just pure and perfect filial love. He didn't do it out of fear. He didn't do it because he was afraid of being punished. He didn't do it to get a reward. He didn't 
He loves his father. He has loved his father eternally. And everything he does is out of this pure and perfect love. This is why Jesus said, you, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, the only way to, to do that is to receive that and to believe that. That pure and perfect obedience is mine. I like what someone said, Jesus came to die the death we should have died, and he came to live the life we should have lived. So, you know, if you have a contract or a lease, typically a contract, well, they, they all have terms and conditions. Those are things you must do. But if you, if you violate the contract, then uh, not only is the contract broken, but very often you have to pay damages. You have to pay money to the other party. Jesus came and he not only, he said, I did not come to uh, destroy the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And when it talks about the law and the prophets, that's talking about the entire Old Testament. It's a shorthand term for the entire Old Testament. He said, I came to fulfill all the will of God. In fact, to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand Jesus came as the servant of Yahweh. He took Adam's place. Adam was supposed to extend Eden over the whole earth. It was the place of God's presence. It was the place of the knowledge of the glory of God. And Adam's assignment was to extend that over the whole earth. He didn't. And, um, you know, the rest is history, as we say. But Adam was the son of God. But he failed. And, and then you follow the stream all the way to Noah. God calls Noah. Noah fulfills the mission to, a, to an extent, but he fails. And in the beginning, in the garden, just after the serpent told Eve that lie, the Lord spoke to the serpent and said, I will put enmity, division between your, the seed, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That, that's Genesis 3.15. It is the most condensed summary of the entire Bible that I know of, all of salvation history is packed into that like, like a dense, you know, these, these stars, these black holes, are, they're like infinitely dense. That scripture is just so compacted. Everything it foretells, everything from, from, from that point and really eternity past into eternity future. And it speaks of the seed of the woman, that seed is Christ. Abraham's, God's promise to Abraham about the seed. Of course, he's speaking on the one hand about Isaac, but he's really speaking eventually about Christ, who will be a blessing, that's through Christ that Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations. So the gospel was always, not only for the people of Abraham, the Jews, but for all the, the nations. And, and so, so we follow that seed, Noah, Noah blows it. And then eventually God calls Abraham to be the head of a new nation. And he calls him out. And we know, you know, we talk about the faith of Abraham, but Abraham's life was not pretty. Right. The Bible takes pains <laughs> to paint people just the way they were. It doesn't hide their flaws. Right. So we, we get Abraham. Then we get the patriarchs, the mafia of the Old Testament. Those guys were brutal. Uh, and, and, you know, you can go right down the line 
And they are called to fulfill the will of God. Moses. Moses doesn't complete the mission. We have David. We know about David. We know what happened with David, great King David. And uh, praise God, our, our, our spiritual genealogy has some really interesting people in it. You know, in the genealogy of Jesus, you've got Bathsheba, you've got, um, uh, what was, uh, who are Tamar, you have Bathsheba, you have uh, Rahab. Rahab, and who's the fourth one? Ruth, Ruth. And they all have a checkered history. And they're in the lineage of the Messiah. There's hope for us. Come on. I mean, that's what God is broadcasting. He is saying over and over and over to people of the earth, I love imperfect people. His message, the, 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 the gospel, you know, Carl Sagan, this astronomer years back, said, you know, talked about billions and billions of stars. And so the United States started this program called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They spent millions, billions of dollars, I think. And the ironic thing is there is extraterrestrial intelligence. He's God. And they were looking for radio signals, but God didn't send radio signals. He sent his own son. And the, the message he had for the people of earth was, I forgive you. I will die for you. I will save you. I will take your place. I will become you. The intimacy that, between Christ and our sin is its gasping, it's breathtaking, it's scary. I mean, you, you just almost want to drop back. Think, how can that be? The Bible says he was made to be sinned. Now he never sinned. He 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 was not he did not transgress, but he became sin. He became a sinner. So the law had to curse him. You see that? He put himself in a position where he became the greatest sinner, though he never sinned. He was harmless, blameless. But because he took our sin and he identified with it, Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors. The law had to curse him. That was not a courtesy. This was not a good, just a good idea. Uh, that's a pleasant thing to do. Uh, wasn't that nice? Uh, that's a good idea. Um, no. It was an absolute necessity. Unless he did that, we would have perished for eternity. This was not a kind gesture. This was absolutely a rescue mission. And this is why almost all good movies and books and songs, you'll find there is a redemptive thing in it. And I'm not saying they're holy. Every song is holy. Every movie is holy. I'm not saying that. But you will find somehow people are looking for redemption. And they come up with really squirrely ideas. You know, secular songs have a lot of theology in them. They are all about losing love and finding love and trying to be a better man. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's really messed up, but it is a perfect picture of the human race. They're all trying to be better, trying to be a good man, and, uh, you know, in the movies, 
you get this terrible guy. He's the wolf on Wall Street. I never saw that movie, I, 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 but I guess he's a bad guy or whatever. And he does these terrible things, but you know, he falls in love and this gal helps him to realize this is not what life is all about. So he starts uh, taking care of orphan children or something. And he redeems himself. Forget about the fact that he's murdered people or stolen billions of dollars. He's, he's done something good. And Hollywood, Bollywood, every wood, every movie kind of runs in that theme where we're redeeming ourselves. Uh, uh, and, well, they've done good. They've gone to college. They've done this and they've made something of themselves. I'm not saying those are bad things, but I am saying they, those, those will not redeem you. There's only one thing that can redeem us. It's the blood of Jesus. And, and that was costly. That meant he had to become sin. He was made to be sin. And, and so, you know, Luther would make this very bold statement. That man, you would like him, Pastor Starling. That man was very bold. He said he became the, the worst uh, sinner. He became the murderer, the adulterer. You know, he took David's sin. He took Paul's blasphemy. He took this. I mean, it's scary to even say that, but it's true. And he so identified with you, just turned you inside out, became you. And so you see this many times in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms, Jesus said, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets are about me. Those are the, the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament, the, their Old Testament. All the books of the Old Testament come under those three headings, the way they organize their Old Testament. The book order is different than ours. Same books, they just put them in a different order. But when Jesus said, the law and the Psalms and prophets testify of me, he's just basically saying the entire Old Testament tells about me about my suffering and entering into glory. And then he says it another way. It testifies to my death, burial, resurrection. It puzzled me, how can that be the central thing that, that you talk about, Paul? That this is my gospel, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. When I, I saw that years ago. I thought, if this is my gospel, I thought, Paul, we already know that. Just, I mean, I thought, Paul, Nobody's going to buy that DVD because we already know that. Everybody knows that. And then it, I thought, maybe, maybe the Apostle Paul knows more than I do. Maybe that's more meaningful than I, I realize. And then you see the whole, God's whole revelation to the human race is wrapped up in that. So you have all these servants of the Lord and then Israel becomes the son of God. The, the Bible, the Old Testament refers to Israel as my son. And he is the servant of Yahweh. And then somewhere in the 40s, the chapters of 40 of Isaiah, can't remember exactly where, you've got the servant of, the, of Yahweh is the nation of Israel. And then suddenly, it's this solitary individual. And, and, and it transitions over to one person. And this person is the one that puzzled the, the Ethiopian eunuch, where this one person, this servant of Yahweh, he is tormented and tortured so badly that he doesn't look human. And, and even though he's done no sin, all the sins of the people are laid on him and all their sickness and disease. And this is why the eunuch said, who's he talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And that's where Philip, what did he preach to him? He said, he, it says he preached Jesus. That's right. That was his message. That was Paul's message death, burial, resurrection, so that Jesus comes 
And, you know, think about it. Israel goes into Egypt through the efforts of a man named Joseph. Jesus goes into Egypt through a man named Joseph. Uh, uh, the infants are slaughtered in Egypt by Pharaoh. Uh, Jesus is taken to Egypt to escape the slaughtering of infants by Herod. Uh, uh, Jesus comes out of Egypt just like Israel came out of Egypt. Israel is baptized in the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. Moses goes up on the mount and, gives, and receives the law. Jesus goes up on the, on the mount and delivers uh, the, 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 the he, he, he gives the authoritative interpretation of the law because he wrote it. <laughs> it was his finger that wrote that out. And so he reinterprets, intensifies, internalizes the law and shows them this is impossible for you to do because you are not God. You must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. And where we struggle is we're always trying to be that person, even well, be, be, be God in a way. We'd never admit that. But even in our earnest, sincere desire to be more spiritual or to, to press in or to love God more, it's very subtle where you switch over and you're your own savior. And you know what? That's convenient because then you can get a little glory for that. You can pat yourself on the back and say, man, you know, wow, I'm really getting in there. But there is this place where it is so childlike and you're so dependent on that pure and perfect righteousness that's beyond you. You cannot say it, you cannot do it, you cannot be it. And you are humbled and you die. <laughs> You die. The old Adam is always trying to get some credit. He is, will always, until we get a new body, he will always try to nudge in there and get some of the glory. And, and say, I did it. I did this. And I, I, I did it in a holy, pious way. I did it praying in tongues. <laughs> I did it reading my Bible. I did it you know, giving. There's this place where you're just, you're, like Paul said in Romans 3, he said, the law was given to stop every mouth. That every mouth would be closed before God. And that's what the grace of God will do to you. It will humble you. It will exalt you. I bring down and I exalt. <laughs> when you actually get a glimpse into the grace of God, it absolutely shuts your mouth. I mean, there's a place where you just almost don't want to say anything because you'll mess it up. You just, all you can do is receive the grace of God, and when you do, it produces all kinds of fruit and holy things in our lives. Uh, when, you know, Good works and good fruit comes forth before you even know it because you're abiding in the vine and in that love of God. And it's a continual flow where we're just thanking God for that righteousness, that glory, and, and, and his pure and perfect obedience. So go back to the contract. Jesus basically relived the history of Israel. And he did what everyone else didn't do. 
So if you're reading the Old Testament, it, 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 it ends, it fizzles out at the end. There's all these great promises. This is going to be so super. You know, you're going to come out of captivity and wow. And then, but you get to those uh, books towards the end of the Old Testament after they come out of exile and it's like, uh, where's the fireworks? Where's the great temple? Where's, you know, it doesn't look like it. And, you know, someone said this, some, one scholar said this, he said, you, you, you leave the Old Testament yearning for something greater. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, there's something greater than the temple here. Something greater than Moses or Solomon. Greater than the law. And he is the greater one. And he comes and he not only pays the damages for our breach of contract on the cross. He not only suffered and bled and paid uh, the price but he performed all the will of God. He fulfilled the covenant for us. It is a perfect righteousness. And so, you know, as Brother Hagin used to say, what remains but praise? What remains but thanksgiving? I'm, my, my oldest boys, you know, all my kids, just awesome. My oldest boy followed me into the ministry and oh man, he was my shadow uh, when he was single and um, one day I'm ashamed to say this, but I, I spoke harshly. I could see the pain in his face. Oh, I struggle to forgive myself for that. I'd be walking down the street and I just want to drop to my knees on the pavement. I didn't because people would think you were crazy, but <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to drop down and say, oh God, forgive me, forgive me. I couldn't say forgive me enough. I just couldn't wash it away with asking him to forgive me. Now, I knew he did. It didn't take, I, I, you know, theoretically, okay, mentally, intellectually, I know the Bible says, I know he forgives you instantly, but I couldn't convince myself. I had hurt him. I hurt him. Uh, but when I saw that not only did Jesus pay the price of that, but that he fulfilled all the will of God, he lived a perfect life so that I could look back over my shoulder and I could look back at my life and according to the gospel I can say, lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the will of God. That takes faith. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. Righteousness is the power of the gospel because it severs everything that Satan can do to you. Think about it. Without righteousness, which is justification, it's being fully justified, without it, you don't have a leg to stand on. You have no relationship with God. You have no basis to pray. You have no promises to believe. They don't belong to you. If you're not justified, you're not in the family of God. Justification makes you a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. It gives you a foundation to pray. You now have the name of Jesus and you can pray 
you can pray in his name. You're a child of God. And you have certain rights and privileges. Without it, you have nothing. So justification, being justified by faith, by grace, wholly apart from your works, good or bad, severs Satan's authority over you. He loses all right to uh, plague you and defeat you. Now, you will still be tested. You will still have tribulation. You will still have trouble in this life. Jesus said we will. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That is always my hope that every difficulty, every situation where it's, you know, it, it, it feels like you're not just in a storm. It feels like the ship has sunk and you're sitting in the ship on the bottom of the ocean. What always encourages me is Jesus was raised from the dead. He became me on the cross. He suffered every adversity, every difficulty that Satan can throw at me, and he came through it. He came out of the grave. And this is not theory. It's historical. It's a fact that we can look back to and say, this is a historical fact. It happened. I'm one with him. He came out of the grave. I was buried with him. I've been raised up together with him. It is the ultimate victory in every situation. So when we're praying in situations, we're not praying for the victory. We're praying praying from a place of victory that has already happened. That doesn't mean that everything will clear up overnight or all the pain will go away, but we're saved. And standing in faith for that does all kinds of wonderful things uh, as we pass through that. I don't like trial and tribulation, but it's there. And Paul said we glory in it, we rejoice in it, rejoicing always in everything of thanks. He, he you know, somehow, I wish it weren't so, but somehow that works patience and faith and victory and hope and maturity and, and stability in your life. But you can do it knowing that Jesus came out of the grave. You do have the victory. Because every bad thing the devil's throwing at you or life is throwing at you, Jesus died to it. He was buried. And, and if he came out of the tomb and he did, then you're coming through it. You're coming through that. That's where our, our victory is. Sometimes, sometimes we get tricked by thinking our victory is this situation changing. May I have a Kleenex? Is there a Kleenex there down there? Um, we, and we get our eyes. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I'll take two of those. Uh, we get our eyes, sorry, on the circumstances changing. And we think that when this changes, then I'll have the victory. That's <laughs> wrong. Get your eyes off that situation. You have the victory. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't feel like I do. I know. I've got a few things like that going on too. And God has this He has this approach where he says, uh, count it all joy. You know, if you think of it this way, how much trouble do you have? How big is that problem? How big is it? He says, count that all joy. So however big it is, that's how much joy you have. And if you just take that, and I've seen this happen sometimes in just a few minutes. Maybe it takes longer than that. It maybe could take a few days or years. I don't know. But generally, I find that happens just in a very quick time. When I believe that, I say, well, Lord, if I have as much joy 
as I have sorrow right now, I've got a lot of joy. So I'm just going to count it. You didn't say it is joy. You didn't necessarily say I feel joyful, but I'm just going to count this as joy. And when you start treating that, that t- think of that problem, that situation as joy. I, he said, count it all joy. Imagine, you can just slap a sticker on that thing, that thing, you know, and if it's a real problem, hey, if it's, if it's not bothering you uh, day and night and, you know, you're worried and think, you know, how is this possibly going to work out? It's not really, I don't think that qualifies as a real problem. The problems are the ones that look like they're going to swallow you alive. Okay, little problems, this works for them too. But to think that you can just slap a sticker on that situation and say joy. Wow, that's radical. And is it fiction? No, it's reality because Jesus died to that thing. I, can't, I don't know how to say in English or how to express that any better than that. He died to that situation. He took every rotten, bad deal that's come into this fallen world and he died. It was buried with him. And I've been buried with him. Uh, according to the scriptures. And I've been raised up together with him. Now in this in-between time, between his resurrection and our resurrection, we go through this life. Uh, And and the vicissitudes of life, the trials, the tribulations. But he said, count it all joy. That, that That helps me. Because many times I'm trying to make it joyful. He didn't say do that. Or I'm praying so hard I'm constantly looking for a change, for a situation to change. But he said, count it all joy. Now I'm at rest. I have permission to be happy in the middle of this. It's the same thing with worry. You know, talking again about the law, how it exposes you as you are. Sometimes we think worry is meritorious. Like I'm being a good father or a good mother. Because I'm worried about my children and people even say that. You know, you say, I'm so worried about da-da-da. And they say, oh, you're just, so, you're just such a good mom, such a good dad. That's why you're worried. That's a lie. The truth is, you're full of unbelief. And I could just talk about myself. That's not a good thing. It's an unholy thing. Right. Believe me, if anybody can worry, it's a lawyer. I was paid to worry. <laughs> I, I was a professional worrier. And, and I, I can get that attitude, poor Joe, you know, I'm just worried and, you know, I, all the brothers and sisters, you know, feel sorry for me. It's, it's not a virtuous thing. It's, it's idolatry. It's thinking I can be like God. If I worry this thing, I can control it. I can affect the outcome. You can't. You're not God. Actually, one of the greatest things you can do in faith is not worry. Because God says, don't worry. You know, there's people who really know God and they're so neat to be around because, you know, when they say, they don't say things frivolously. They don't just rattle off. They are sort of locked and loaded. And when the Spirit of God gives them a release in their heart, whether they know it mentally or not, they'll say something. And when they speak, you know, that was God. And I love it when those people come up to you. Have, have you ever had that happen where a man or woman of God will just say, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that situation. And it's just wonderful. Or they say to you, you know, everything's going to be okay. And you know they're right, and it works. Well, Jesus is one of those people. Yes, he is. And he said... 
Don't worry about that. He said, don't worry about that. Everything will be okay. Everything will be all right. Don't worry about it. He's one of those people. He's very tuned in. You know what I mean? Jesus has a real good connection. And, and he said, don't, through the Apostle Paul, he said, don't worry about anything. My wife was on a walk one day and she was listening to Brother Hagen. Brother Hagen saw this and Brother Hagen said, I'll never worry, Lord, I'll never worry another day of my life. Um, Mary was walking. She stopped dead in her tracks. She said, Lord, can I say that? And she said, the Lord said, can you? <laughs> I, I, that's how Jesus talks. You notice that in the Gospels, he'll answer a question with a question. Lord, can I, can I say that? Jesus said, can you? you know, Mary, she's a mom. She immediately goes to her biggest concern. But what about my daughter? We, we just have one, one girl. Girls are special. And it was as though she was saying, well, you don't expect me not to worry about our daughter. And the Lord said, are you helping me? By worrying, are you helping me? I like to think of it this way. God has given me permission not to worry. Because we feel responsible. We feel we've got to worry. If I don't worry about this, who is? But, but God says... You know, don't worry. So he, I, I, I tell myself, I have permission not to worry about this. And he said, rejoice always. That's, you know, I say this reverently. To us, that's crazy. That's, that's radical talking. Rejoice always. I, and I don't mean the phony plastic thing where, you know, come on, we can say this. We've got our buzzwords. We've got our cliches. And, you know, how are you doing? Glory to God. Uh, I'm going to live forever. Oh, okay. But how are you really doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm hemorrhaging. <laughs> but I can't tell anybody because I've got to maintain, you know, the picture. Plastic, uh, perfect plastic Christianity. Uh, I'm not talking about that. But... There, there is a place where we just, well, the Word of God says just rejoice, rejoice. And sometimes it's hard, but really, I tell you, if you take out your stickers and you put that sticker on there, this is joy. I call it joy. God calls it joy. So I call it joy. So it must be something to be happy about. If, if God says rejoice always, then there's something to be happy about. It might as well. It beats, it beats being depressed and discouraged. Pray always. Give thanks always in everything. Give thanks. Those are powerful words. And you know what? They all go back to righteousness. The revelation of righteousness is what gives the gospel power. If the gospel you hear does not reveal the righteousness of Christ, it's, it's, it ain't the gospel. It's something else. You can tell Bible stories. And it's not necessarily the gospel. You can even tell stories about Jesus and they have their place and it's good. But unless the word reveals the cross of Christ, the righteousness of God, that was Paul's, he, 
he said, I, I want to know nothing except uh, Christ and Him crucified. I, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's how all his sermons, all his teaching about husbands, wives, children, employers, employees, praying, giving, forgiving, loving, receiving, and all those things came under that rubric, under that title. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the foundation. It is the root and substance of our, of our conviction, of our salvation, of our faith. It all goes back to the cross. With the, without the cross, we've got nothing. With the cross, we've got everything. Because He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He fulfilled all righteousness. He completely paid the penalty. So you don't have to worry if this is some kind of retribution against you. This is... This is, this is bad oats that you sowed. This is your fault. Well, whether it is or it isn't, it's under the blood. And that's, that's where it stops, right there. And, and it goes back to the cross because if He's fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf, what is there to worry about? Then how will He not provide all your needs according to His riches and glory? This makes faith easier in the sense that you don't get the credit for it. It's just walking in it. So did I answer the question about 1 Samuel and Deuteronomy? It's the law that kills it's, God that, it's the gospel that makes alive. With, with the law where we see our own carnal efforts, our own striving, it puts the old Adam, the old Eve, to death. It, it puts them in their place where they, you know, we've been crucified with Christ and it, we reckon that old nature dead. And it's the gospel, that gospel of righteousness that makes alive, that quickens us in every area of our lives and personalities. So... Um, we want to pray. I don't know how long these services go, but I'm, I don't think I have more to say on that line. But, but I just do want to just take a moment to wait on the Lord. I don't suppose we have music. Any kind of music. We don't. That's okay. That's nice. I have really enjoyed my time here. Uh, really, really. I'm not, this is not guest speaker talk. I'm really impressed and love the enthusiasm you all have for what you're doing here uh, in the Lord. It's just, it's really wonderful. I wish my wife could have come. I hope next time she's you can be here with me. Father, thank you. Lord, this is a church that's well-fed and well-taught. But I, I pray, Lord, we all can see more deeply into the realm of glory. That place is a place utter extreme forgiveness such intense love Lord I know that 
Bible says in 1 John 4 that this is love. That God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Forgiveness is, is your love language with the human race. And we know it, but we can know it more deeply. Ever and ever falling into that infinite pool of the infinite love of God be like you as we see you oh I pray that that would transform us our families this revealing of your righteousness that came at such an extreme week there are no words to say how much it cost we do not know it must be revealed and as you are so gentle and so kind to allow us to see motivations things that are not love in our lives that's not condemnation the devil will try to condemn us for it but it's revelation and that's when we turn and we embrace you, your righteousness, your forgiveness. And once again, we thank you. Oh God, thank you. I see that. I see that. And I thank you. I cannot change that, but I'm not God, but I thank you. You have. You can. You will. And in the meantime, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what it was all for. It wasn't that you took perfect people and you declared them righteous you took fallen people broken people sinful people and you took the worst things that people have done and you became that on the cross you're the propitiation not only for our sins but just to persuade us and convince us you did more than enough you're the propitiation for the sins of the whole world that helps us to receive forgiveness for ourselves because we understand you took the sins of the whole world then you surely have taken mine and you have forgiven me that is heaven that's joy unspeakable that's glory Lord I so much desire and I just feel led to say this to for us for the body to enter into a place where that glory is so real and we stop trying and striving and putting on shows and taking credit even for pressing into God. It's where our mouths are stopped. That's revival. Every time I've seen you move, it was you that did it. You showed up. You took over. People didn't organize it. And we were humbled and glad and we stood back. Lord, I pray for that in the body of Christ. I, I ask you to help me to proclaim the mystery of the gospel as I ought to. To make that real. To make that real. And I pray, Father, uh, anyone in this room who's been hurting and struggling with, with things, that that would become such a reality. Your blood, your blood, 
that rest, that place. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. You know, um, sometimes you lay hands on people, but some of the greatest things I've ever seen happen was when I didn't lay hands on anyone. Some of the most spectacular healings happened when I didn't touch a person. Tumors disappeared. When I went up early in the ministry, when I got out of Bible school and I went to Alaska, I was invited to go to a little village called Nunapachuk outside of Bethel. We had to land 10 miles from this town, from the village, because of ice fog, and they pulled me behind a snow machine on a sled because I was bringing Brother Higgins books. And I got to the village, and I found out when I got there that the pastor's son had told his dad that I was going to do a healing meeting. I had no intention of doing healing meetings. I didn't know how to do a healing meeting. I sat through two years of Brother Hagen, and I didn't know how to do a healing meeting. I was so mad at him going to do a healing meeting. And so I see these people, these Eskimos coming across the snow to my healing meeting. I just wanted to, I wanted to run. I thought they're going to stone me with snowballs as a false prophet. <laughs> and so people, you know, I had an altar call and I was hoping they'd have maybe a cold. And I say, you know, what's wrong? And they'd say, this terrible thing. And I'd, I'd lay hands on them. I didn't know how to do a healing me. But I'd, I'd always heard evangelists say, do what you couldn't do before, or something like that. So one lady came. She was crippled and limping badly across the tundra. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. <laughs> and so her name was Lucy, and I prayed for Lucy. I said, do what you couldn't do before. And she, she's all bound up. She sticks up one arm, sticks up another arm. Then she starts swinging her legs like a 16-year-old. I was shocked. I, no one was more surprised than the healing evangelist. <laughs> I'd ask other people. I was afraid to ask. I'd pray for them. And I'd say, how are you? They'd say, I'm healed. And I, I, you wanted to say, no. Some of the greatest things I've ever seen God do is when I didn't lay hands on anybody. But God moved and, and God helped. And I, I believe he has done that tonight. So God bless you. Thank you for having me. Pastor, I'll turn this back over to you.